conspiracies, the paranormal, true crime, the unknown. Let's expand our mind one level at a time. Welcome to Planet Darkness. Good evening guys, and welcome to a new episode of Planet Darkness. I do want to apologize for not being able to record anything in the last, I would say, maybe two to three weeks. I recently just uh, moved to a different home, and it's just been super hectic. And to top it off, I actually ended up getting COVID. You know, what were the chances? I had never gotten COVID um, ever since it came out or maybe I did and I just didn't know but I ended up getting COVID it wasn't bad at all I did wake up uh, on a Wednesday the day after that I moved in into my new home uh, after so February 2nd I moved in and uh, February 1st actually and February 2nd when I woke up my nose was clogged my throat was hurting um i had a nasty cough and i knew something was wrong just because my head was just pounding right um it actually happened to me and and to my girl as well um and yeah uh, i felt really bad on wednesday um ended up going to work without a problem um you know i took a shower uh had a you know took some pills maybe took some Tylenol um drank a Red Bull and I was good to go but uh around 2 p.m I just ended up started getting a high fever and uh I knew it was time to go home I actually got tested um came out uh negative the first time and when I got home my mom gave me an injection uh and she actually uh gets injections from uh from TJ from Tijuana and she had an injection um I forgot what it was actually I don't know if it was like vitamin vitamin B12 I, honestly I, I don't know but when I woke up the next day I, I I felt great you know I felt I mean I still had a cough but I felt good I didn't have a headache I didn't have a uh, I didn't have a fever and oh and the night before I, I had chills I had nasty chills um and then the next day I woke up which was Thursday, and I actually felt really good. Um, same thing, you know, I uh, I ended up uh, not going to work just because even though, you know, I felt good, I, I hadn't gotten my test results yet. Um, so I ended up doing some stuff around the house, and it turns out that, you know, I was negative, right? So um, I told I told my, my wife, uh, um, you know, hey, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, it could be just a... Uh, just a strong flu right um and crazy enough on friday when i woke up uh i was back to the same thing clogged nose uh you know my my throat you know hurt like a bitch uh my you know pounding on on my forehead and on the back of my head um so I had heard from someone who actually had COVID in the past that sometimes you're not supposed to test right away because it won't show. Um, and then I, I ended up getting another test 
and the next day that's when i i got the, the positive test um but you know nothing bad just felt like a flu yeah i was uncomfortable um just drank a lot of fluids uh, my mouth did get really dry my lips got super chapped as well but i just managed to drink gatorade um, orange juice um we also had a a vapor it's like a vapor rub inhaler that we had in a in our room just to you know help us out um and yeah after that started feeling good so you know never had to go to the hospital or anything like that just you know just stayed home um and uh you know back uh in mo- on monday i was back to feeling 100% so you know yeah i got covid but letter you know didn't didn't keep me down and uh i'm back to normal um so that's one of the reasons why i also couldn't record just because just you know, constant coughing uh my voice was super raspy i actually almost lost my voice um a few days while i had that uh while i had covid but you know other than that is you know i'm back to normal um and it just brings me back to the point of you know hey what's the whole point of pushing vaccines um if you know you're still going to get covid right and there's nothing better than your natural immunity but that's the reason why I wasn't able to record but finally I'm back on this uh you know I'm I'm going to constantly record week after week I'd like to have a new episode either Tuesday or Wednesday just because those are usually my days off during the week um so that's when I get the chance to actually sit down sit down and record uh I've been doing a lot of paranormal episodes lately where actually most of them have just been paranormal and I've been getting great responses from you guys uh you know a lot of interest um a lot of support as well so I do appreciate all the support um I've gotten over 300 plays ever since I started the uh, the podcast so I appreciate all of you guys that actually take the time to sit down and listen to me listen to everything that comes out of my mouth because uh it means a lot to me um and uh i've also you know gotten a few inquiries of probably maybe having a guest um and i actually will have a guest uh next episode i'm going to have my sister come on the uh, podcast i'm not sure if you guys remember but i did mention that you know my sister had a little history in the past um uh, paranormal paranormal events that she went through uh in a period of time so i'm gonna have her come on next week and we're gonna sit down and we're just gonna go over that and see uh you know uh what the crazy stuff that she went through because uh that girl has gone through a lot um and honestly i can't wait to hear hear it again not only hear it again for in my perspective but have her basically tell her story to you guys but yeah so I'm going to go ahead and jump jump in today's story. Today's story is actually going to be uh, something that I've been wanting to do for a very, very long time. And the reason why I haven't done it is because it's actually going to be a very long story. This is actually going to be uh, one of those longer episodes. Um, so if you guys, you know, want to, you know, probably listen to this podcast, maybe, you know, during work hours or, or whenever you guys need to, I, I can assure you that, you know, the this is going to be a great episode. It's actually going to be on the uh, the high school Columbine massacre. I'm not sure if you guys remember this. Um, I know I don't remember it, but 
over the course of the years, you know, as I grew up, I, I eventually heard the story about what happened. Um, and it's really crazy. It just it just makes me think about situations like that, you know, where he where the, the these two guys uh, ended up just, you know, killing so many of their, uh, you know, the, her, their fellow students in, in that high school. You know, obviously, we've all been in high school. We had, you know, a bunch of friends and, you know, just imagining something like that happening. It's it's pretty shocking. Um, but let's go ahead and jump into this today's episode. Um, like I said, it's, it's going to be a pretty long episode, so I would rather go ahead and get this started. Uh, so the uh, Columbine High School Massacre, right? So this happened back in April 20th, 1999. Now, the two name, the names of the uh, of the murderers that committed the massacre were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. I believe that's how you pronounce your name. Um, and let's just—I just, just want to, you know, give you some feedback on, you know, maybe their early life um, and who who these individuals were, right? So, Eric David Harris was born on April 9th, nineteen eighty-one. He was born in Wichita, Kansas. Harris' parents were both born and raised in Colorado. His mother, Catherine Ann Poole, was a homemaker. His father, Wayne Harris, was working in the United States Air Force as a transport pilot, forcing the family to move around the country sporadically. In 1983, the family moved to Dayton, Ohio. When Harris was two years old, six years later, the family relocated to Oscotta, Michigan. Michigan pastor, William Stone lived across the street from the Harris family while they were located in Oscott. Stone recalled them as a great neighbors and would often see Wayne very engaged with his sons. So up to this point, everything looks pretty normal. Uh, it seems like the uh, dad was in the Air Force, so they moved out a lot. Um, but it's, they seemed you know, pretty normal to everybody else. The Harris family then moved to Plattsburgh, New York in 1991. During his tenure at the Stafford Middle School, Harris played Little League Baseball, regularly went to birthday parties, and was part of the crowd. Kyle Ross, a former classmate of Harris, said he was just a typical kid. The Harris family finally settled back in Colorado the next year when Wayne retired from the military. On a 1997 English class assignment, Harris wrote about how difficult the move was from New York to Colorado. It was the hardest moving from Plattsburgh. I have the most memories from there, Harris continued. When I left, I left alone, lost and even agitated that I spent so much time with them and now I have to go because it's something I can't stop. Harris, in a basement tape, blamed his father for moving the family around, forcing Harris to start out at the bottom of the ladder. Harris also added that kids would often mock his appearance. So it seems like Eric Harris was a typical kid, but once he ended up moving from New York to Colorado, that's when uh, things started changing. That's when he started blaming his dad. Um, and yeah, I mean, who who likes... I mean, I know that I moved a couple times between my elementary and middle school days, and yeah, it sucks having to start all over. So I can imagine uh, his frustration. The Harris family lived in rented accommodations for the first three years that they lived in the Littleton area. While Harris was in seventh grade, he met Klebold, 
1996, the Harris family purchased and settled a house south of Columbine High School. Harris's older brother Kevin attended college at the University of Colorado. Harris's father took a job with Flight Safety Services Corporation, and Harris's mother, a former homemaker, became a caterer. Harris entered Columbine High School in 1995 as a freshman. Columbine had just gone through a major renovation and, ex and expansion. From all accounts, he had many friends and was let forward and midfield on the Columbine soccer team for his freshman and sophomore year. Hey, who would have known? So this guy was actually in the soccer team. According to one of his teammates, Josh Swanson, he said Harris was a solid soccer player who enjoyed the sport a lot. Harris, during his freshman year, met Tiffany Typher, who was in German class. Typher later recounted that Harris quickly wooed her. Harris asked her to homecoming and she accepted. After the event, it appeared that Typher was no longer interested in seeing Harris anymore for reasons never disclosed. When Typher refused to socialize with Harris again, Harris staged a fake suicide, sprawling on the ground with fake blood splashed all over him. When Typher saw him, she began to scream for help, at which point Harris and his friends began laughing, prompting Typher to storm off, shouting at Harris to get psychological help. So it seems like uh, this Harris guy, this Eric Harris, was you know solid soccer player. Um, ended up meeting this girl Tiffany Typher in German class, and you know he quickly wooed her. You know who knows he was probably a a, a ladies' man. Um, but it seems like after after going to homecoming, uh, she did not want to see him again, and uh, something happened. You know he probably made you know Eric Harris super annoyed or, or irritated or, or frustrated you know moving um from new york to colorado had already affected him and then maybe his first girlfriend i guess leaving him affected him as well so that's a little bit about eric eric harris's uh, early life and background so let's go ahead and move on to dylan which is actually the second murder so dylan clevold Dylan Bennett Klebold was born on September 11, 1981, in Lakewood, Colorado, to Thomas and Sue Klebold. On the day after the shooting, Klebold's mother remembered that shortly after Klebold's birth, she described what felt like a shadow had been cast over her, warning her that this child would bring her great sorrow. I think I still make of it what I did at that time. It was a passing feeling that went over very quickly like a shadow. Sue said in an interview with Colorado Public Radio. Whoa. So this is some pretty crazy stuff, guys. Check this out. So this lady, uh, Sue Klebold, as soon as she had Dylan, one of the murderers, she felt like a shadow passing over her. And she felt like a great sorrow. So this is this is some, some crazy foreshadowing. No pun intended. Klebold was soon diagnosed with pyloric stenosis, a condition in which the opening between the stomach and small intestines thickens, causing severe vomiting during the first few months of life. Sue later assured herself that the feeling she had that her son would bring her immense sorrow was that her son would be physically ill. So she didn't really think much of it. Um, I'm sure she didn't you know, have in mind that her son was going to be a, a murderer. But she basically thought that um, that sorrow that she felt was was just his her, her son being physically ill. 
Klebold's parents had met when they were both studying art at Ohio State University. The two quickly became smitten. After they both graduated, they married in 1971 with their first child, Byron, being born in 1978. Thomas had initially worked as a sculptor, but then moved over to engineering to be more financially stable. Sue had worked in an assistance series with disabled children. Furthermore, Klebold's parents were pacifists and attended a Lutheran church. Both Klebold as his older brother attended confirmation classes in accordance with the Lutheran tradition. As had been this case with his older brother, Klebold was named after a renowned poet, Dylan Thomas. At the family home, the Klebolds also observed some rituals in keeping with Klebold's maternal grandfather's Jewish heritage. Klebold attended Normandy Elementary School for first and second grade and then trans transferred to Governor's Ranch Elementary School where he was part of the Challenging High Intellectual Potential Students program for gifted children. According to reports, Klebold was exceptionally bright as a young child. Although he appeared somewhat sheltered in elementary school, when he transitioned to Ken Carroll Middle School, he found it difficult. Fellow classmates recalled Klebold being painfully shy and quiet often to an uncomfortable degree. Klebold's parents were unconcerned with the fact that Klebold found the changing of schools uneasy, as they assumed it was just regular behavior among young adolescents. So you start seeing a little pattern between Dylan and Eric Harris. It seems like, uh, you know, once moving into their uh, young adolescent lives and middle schools, that's where uh, you started noticing the difference, you know, uh, too sh you know, very shy, very timid. Um, so you start seeing that pattern between both of them. During his early year school years, Klebold played baseball, soccer, and t-ball. Klebold was in the Cub Scouts with friends Brooks Brown, whom he was friends with since the first grade. Brown lived near the house Harris' parents had bought when they finally settled in Littleton and rode the same bus as Harris. Shortly after, Klebold had met Harris and the pair quickly became best friends. Later, Harris introduced Klebold to his friend Nathan Dykeman, who also attended their middle school, and they all became a tight-knit group of friends. So that's a, uh, a little background story on both Eric and Dylan. Uh, you know, we're going to get into the uh, actual day that this happened, but I just wanted to give you guys, you know, just some backstory. Now, both Harris and Klebold worked together as cooks at a blackjack pizza, a mile south from Columbine High School. Harris was eventually promoted a shift leader. He and his group of friends were interested in computers and were enrolled in a bowling class. Some described Harris as charismatic and others described him as nice and likable. However, Harris also often bragged about his ability to deceive others, one stating in a tape that he could make anyone believe anything. By his junior year, Harris was also known to be quick to anger and threatened people with bombs. So this guy had a little anger management and he was basically going too far, bro. This guy's getting all pissed off. Hey, I'm gonna throw a bomb at you. That's probably what he was trying to tell them. <laughs> Classmates also related that Harris was fascinated by war and wrote out violent fantasies about killing people he didn't like. Now, Klebold was described by his peers and adults as painfully shy. Klebold would often be fidgety whenever someone new talked to him, rarely opening up to people. Klebold was also exceptionally nervous in front of the opposite sex, sometimes avoiding confrontation with girls altogether. In the last year of his life, 
many noted a change. Many noted a change in Clevel's behavior. Unlike before, Clevel became short-tempered, often prone to sudden outbursts of anger. So it seems like Eric Harris's anger, uh, you know, was basically. I'm not sure. Maybe you know. Once you hang out with someone for so long, you I mean, you start acting like each other, right? So they were both, you know, were getting pretty angry and pretty uh, pretty violent. And uh, this Eric Harris guy was really fascinated by war and and just writing out fantasies about killing people. So you can start seeing there that there's already a couple of of, of, of red flags, right? Um, but yeah. But now we're actually going to go ahead and get into the actual story of what happened at. On April 20th, 1999, um, in the Columbine High School. So 17 school days before graduation, it was an ordinary morning of a day that would become anything but ordinary in Jefferson County for the students of Littleton's Columbine High School. At about 11.10 a.m., Eric and Dylan, Reb and Vodka. So Reb and Vodka were their, basically their aliases, right, online. Arrived at Columbine High School. They parked their cars flanking the exits and entrances to the cafeteria. Eric parked his 1986 gray Honda Civic in a parking place in the junior student parking lot to the southeast and Dylan parked his 1982 black BMW on the other side in the senior lot of the southwest. The cars had good view of the front student entrance as well as the entrance to the cafeteria. Neither car was parked in its assigned spot. Brooks Brown had just stepped outside for a cigarette when he saw Eric pull up in his car. He confronted Eric for missing the third period test. Harris laughed and told him, it doesn't matter anymore. Then Eric said to him, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. He then turned Brooks out and unloaded the duffel bags he had in the trunk of his car. Brooks shrugged the words off and headed across the parking lot towards Pier Street, feeling uneasy about the strange exchange. So once they get to to school, they park, right? And this guy, Brooks Brown, goes up to Eric and basically starts letting him know hey why didn't you make it a third you know to your third period for the test and eric this you know just starts laughing and tells him that it doesn't matter anymore um so i feel like eric and brooke probably had a good friendship because then eric says to him hey brooke i like you now get out of here go home so maybe he was just trying to spare him you know maybe uh eric was actually one of the few people that uh, you know i mean brooke was actually one of the few people that eric liked um, so maybe that's why he told him to go home. Shortly after 11.14 a.m., the gunmen dressed in black leather, dusters, trench coats, and wearing wraparound sunglasses carried two duffel bags into the school's cafeteria, each containing a 20-pound propane bomb set to go off at 11.17 a.m. during a lunch. When the cafeteria was the most crowded, so I believe that there was separate separate lunches it seems like a lunch was the uh was a might be the first lunch and that's when the cafeteria was the most crowded uh just moments before their entry a janitor turned off the cafeteria surveillance cameras to rewind the tape they recorded on missing the act of the bags being left on the floor beside two tables they could be seen clearly on a tape when it resumed recording 11 22 a.m 
And before I go in any further, I do want to, you know, take a little ad break. Um, just want to thank a couple of uh, couple a couple of small businesses that I've been in contact that have been sharing my and promoting my podcast. Um, so it'll just be a quick ad break, and then we will come back and we will continue the story. Never in a million years did I think I'd be able to sit in front of a microphone, spill my thoughts to the world, and best of all, get paid for it. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain you guys. Anchor has tools that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is completely and totally free. Yes, it is completely free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, you can download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm sure you won't regret it. Thank you very much for joining me back again. Let's go ahead and get back. So we left off where Eric and Dylan left the two duffel bags in the cafeteria beside two tables. So they had propane uh, bombs that were supposed to be off. That were supposed to be going off, sorry. Eric and Dylan returned to their cars to wait for the explosions. Based on information in Clevel and Harris's home videos and journals, the two intended to blow the school up and then gun down any survivors who were able to escape after the bombs went off. There were about 488 people inside the cafeteria at the time. The propane bombs were supposed to go off. Those people would have surely been killed if the bombs had detonated as planned, and the library likely would have collapsed on the lunchroom due to the structural damage. Fortunately for those inside, the bombs failed to go off. At 11.19am, the Jefferson County Dispatch Center received a 911 call from a person reported hearing an explosion in a field on the east side of Wattsworth Boulevard, about three miles from Columbine High School, between Ken Carroll and Chatfield Avenues. Two backpacks loaded with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and a small propane tank had been placed in an open grassy space three miles southwest of the high school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, but the explosion and subsequent grass fire were enough to divert the attention of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and the Littleton Fire Department. Police dispatch radioed the event out. This audio clip is about 40 minutes long and includes 911 calls as well as police communications. It begins with the explosion in the field and continues past the library shootings. We're not going to get into this audio clip just because it's actually... Uh, not letting me uh, play it for some odd reason but if you ever do want to go on and listen to the audio audio clip you guys can actually listen to it on uh, on youtube so it seems like this was actually a diversion to keep uh the jefferson county sheriff's office um distracted while uh eric and dylan were going to basically be uh, committing this massacre back at school eric and dylan got tired of waiting after setting the car bombs they placed in their vehicles, they each took a duffel bag and a backpack collectively containing two sawed-off shotguns, a 9mm semi-automatic carbon rifle, and a 9mm Tech DC-9 semi-automatic pistol. They headed back to the school. 
They proceeded up the hill toward the top of the west entrance steps, the highest point on the school grounds. Now, it seems like these guys, these guys' bombs that left that they left on um, in the cafeteria never went off, so they got tired of waiting and they decided to move, just move in. From that position, they were near the north side of the library and cafeteria, with the cafeteria entrance below them. The west entrance was there to, to their left, and the athletic field was to the right. A witness heard one of the gunmen shout, Go, go, and both Harris and Klebold pulled out their shotguns and opened fire. Brooks Brown was quoted as saying later, I went to go have my cigarette and heard gunshots, so I took off and started running. I went to random houses, called the cops and told them I knew who it was. It was Eric. It had have to be. Brooks was seen, was seen by witnesses around this time heading south on Pierce Street in the direction of his home. So if you guys remember, Brooks Brown was actually the uh, the first uh, person that noticed Eric and, uh, and Dylan come to the high school. Richard Castaldo and Rachel Scott were sitting on the grassy knoll between the gunmen and the west entrance when they started shooting. Richard was hit with eight bullets but survived though. He suffered critical injury to his spine that would cripple him for life. Rachel was hit four times by bullets from Eric's 9mm high point, taking a fatal bullet to the head. Interestingly, the name Rachel is mentioned on Eric and Dylan's basement tape, in which they make fun of girls who are always talking about Jesus. Eric Harris took off his coat at that point and dropped it near the stairs. Then he reloaded his weapon. Lance Kirkland and friends Danny Rorbro and Sean Graves had just left the cafeteria through the side entrance at the bottom of the stairs with plans to go to Smoker's Pit at Clement Park across the street so Lance could have a smoke. Lance saw Harris and Klebold standing at the top of the outdoor stairway but thought the gunmen were just playing a senior prank, so the three friends headed up to the stairs. Eric and Dylan targeted them next. Lance said later that he didn't remember hearing gunshots, but he was hit in the leg and chest. Danny also was shot in the chest and fell back into Sean. Lance turned to run and was shot in the leg, causing him to fall to the ground. Sean ran past, taking several shots to the back and abdomen before a gunshot wound to the leg downed him just outside the door to the cafeteria. Five students who had been sitting to the west stairs were shot as they ran for cover. 15-year-old Michael Johnson was hit, but he was able to reach the outdoor athletic storage where he hid with other three uninjured students who had already made it there. Mark Taylor suffered a critical hit and fell. Crippled and unable to flee with the others, he played dead. Anne-Marie Hoshler had been eating lunch with friends on the grassy knoll when the shooters opened fire. She got up and tried to run for the shelter of the cafeteria and was shot by Harris. Paralyzed from her injuries, she fell. The gunman attended to shoot some more people who were near the soccer fields several yards away but didn't hit anyone. They also lit and threw homemade pipe bombs onto the school roof toward the grassy hill to the right and down into the parking lot. Witnesses reported hearing one of the gunmen say, This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. So some pretty gruesome stuff, guys. Um, you know, it's uh, it's really scary to think that this can actually happen. You know, um, 
And it scares me not because of me, because I already lived through it, but it scares me because you never know when something like this is going to happen. I have kids who are, in, are, you know, getting into their, you know, middle school ages, and um, and it's crazy. You know, you 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 let your children, your kids, your teenagers go to school thinking that they're going to be protected, and for something like this to happen, um, you know, it really uh, it really keeps you on edge. Teacher Peggy Dodd, who was in the library at the time, said she looked out the window and could see Dylan standing on the hill, just shooting. He had been a student in her computer class the previous year, and she remembered him as being a troublemaker who hacked into computers and wore tall Nazi boots and an overcoat. Dodd said that the Klebold was holding a weapon with both hands and using a sweeping motion, was pointing it toward the south parking lot. While the gunmen were firing onto the fleeing students, Sean Graves managed to crawl to the doorway to the cafeteria, but weakened from blood loss, he could make it all the way inside. He rubbed blood on his face and lay there playing dead. According to the Columbine report, Dylan then headed down the stairs where he shot Daniel Rarbo at close range, killing him. However, an independent investigation led later by the El Paso County Sheriff's Department determined that Eric, not Dylan, was one was the one who had shot and killed Danny. Dylan shot Lance Kirkland again, this time point blank in the face. Lance was critically injured by the shotgun blast that mangled his jaw. He lost consciousness and Dylan left him for dead. Through Lance shotgun blast that, ma- that mangled his jaw, he lost consciousness, sorry, and Dylan left him for dead. Though Lance amazingly survived from there, Dylan went to the cafeteria entrance, stepping on Sean Graves where he entered the cafeteria briefly at 11.21 a.m. Dylan was, perhaps, trying to discover why the propane bombs didn't explode. At 11.22 a.m., the school custodian set the surveillance camera in the cafeteria to record again. On screen, students were beginning to notice that that this was happening outside. Someone going to the big front windows to have a look. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner, a community resource officer at Columbine High School, was sitting in his patrol car over by Smoker's Pit when he received a call on the school's radio from the custodian telling him that he was needed at the back lot of the school. A 911 call from a student at Columbine at 11.23 a.m. reported a female fallen into the south parking lot saying that she might be paralyzed. Deputy Paul Maker who was en route to the diversionary explosion at Wattsworth, was advice of this by dispatch. Deputy Gardner heard the dispatch message over the sheriff's radio as well and put his lights and sirens on as he headed to the Columbine High School. 18-year-old senior Nicholas Foss was in the cafeteria when a girl came running in from outside, screaming, somebody's shooting, someone is shooting. While other students ran away, he ran outside to see what was going on. He could see two guys on the ground, one of, one of whom had half his face blown off. He told investigators later that day that he ran over to the boy who had fallen near the stairs and shook him but realized he was dead. Looking up, he saw the two gunmen at the top of the stairs shooting down at the people below. He recognized them from his fifth period psychology class. Though he didn't know either very well. Foss felt a shock graze his head and ducked back inside the school where he ran for the teacher's lounge. He was joined by his friend Tim Castle, three female teachers, a female cook, and another male student. 
The group crowded into the private bathroom attached to the teacher's lounge where they would spend the next 45 terrifying minutes. At 11.24 a.m., Coach William Dave Sanders and school custodians John Curtis and Jay Gallatine entered the cafeteria to find out what was happening outside. Realizing the danger, they, with the help of school security officer, directed students to get down, to hide under the table, and to get out of the cafeteria by leaving through east exits. As students began to realize the situation was more serious than they initially thought, many panicked and ran, leaving behind their books, backpacks, and even running out of their shoes in their haste to get to safety. Aaron Brown, younger brother of Brooks, was among the students running from the cafeteria. He made it out to the school safely and didn't stop running till he made it to this house. At the same time the cafeteria was being evacuated, a motorcycle patrolman, Deputy Paul Smoker, was on West Bulls Avenue, north of Columbine High School. Hearing the dispatch report about female down in the south parking lot of the school, he radioed that he was responding to the call and heading that way. Patricia Nelson was on hall monitor duty when she heard the commotion outside of the school. She looked out west entrance and saw a male student carrying what she thought was a toy gun and assumed that a school video production was being taped or that it was some sort of prank. She didn't approve of how real it looked and went out to tell them to knock it off. Damn, that's crazy. Student Brian Anderson had been told by another teacher to get out of the school because of the explosions and commotion. Not realizing where or where the danger was, he went out through the first exit he came to, the west entrance to the school. Going through the first set of doors, he saw Eric Harris outside the second set of double doors, but he knew Eric was in film class, so Brian assumed that gun that he was holding was a prop gun. Patty was right behind Brian. Turning, Eric saw the two of them heading his way and he shot at them, shattering the glass doors that separated them from him. Glass and metal fragments sprayed into the corridor, hitting Patty in the shoulder, forearm, and knee, and hitting Brian in the chest. So Brian and Patty are going up to, to Eric thinking that this guy is just recording, when in reality this is very real. Bleeding and terrified by the realization that she'd actually been shot, Patty turned and ran to the library, while Brian Anderson stumbled his way out of the west entryway. He followed her to the library where he quickly hid in a utility closet. Eric Harris and Dylan entered the school shortly after through the same entrance Eric had just fired on, but they were distracted by the arrival of law enforcement outside. Deputy Neil Gardner was the first on the scene. He decided to park the car in the senior lot where he would have gotten a good view of the school and grounds. That lot had happened to be the, close, the lot closest to the west entrance where the gunmen were. As soon as Gardner got out of his car, Eric Harris fired roughly 10 shots at the deputy from west entrance before his weapon jammed. Deputy Gardner returned fire, aiming four shots at Eric. Gardner thought for a moment that he had hit Harris when the gunman turned sharply to the right, but Eric was only clearing the jam. Seconds later, he began shooting at the deputy again. Gardner's patrol car, patrol car wasn't hit, but the two vehicles he parked behind both took shots each. After the quick exchange, Eric Harris retreated through the shattered west entrance into the school. By 11.25, Patty Nelson had made it to the checkout desk in the school's library, library and frantically placed a 911 call. 
as she tried to get students into the library to hide under the table. The tables weren't very large and were not designed to have people under them, but the students complied as best as they could. Though they didn't really understand what was happening, most thought it was some sort of joke or drill or kept moving around. Patty repeatedly several times repeated several times for them to stay down while she was on the phone with 911 describing what she experienced and she could still hear. 911 calls from students and neighbors who lived near the school soon began to flood the dispatch as well as more people became aware that something was not right at Columbine. On the police band dispatch informed officers that people that possible shots had been fired at the high school and that one female was down. At 11.26 a.m., Gardner radioed for backup, telling dispatch, Shot in the building. I need someone in the south lot with me. Jefferson County dispatch sent the word out that multiple shots were fired and the fire department sent a truck over to the grass fire. The div- diversionary bomb had caused over at Wat- Wattsworth Boulevard. In the library, Patty told the 911 operator that she could see smoke coming into the room. She wanted to close the doors that led to the hallway where the smoke was coming from, but the sounds of gunfire and pipe bombs were too frightening. She had children of her own to think about and was rightfully afraid that she would get shot if she left her hiding place. Deputy Scott and Paul Smoker arrived on the west side of the school. They quickly rescued two injured students who were lying on the ground near the baseball field. Down the hill, Smoker saw Gardner with his gun out. Garner yelled to Smoker just as Eric Harris reappeared in the west entrance. Eric exchanged more shots with Deputy Garner, firing his rifle on one of the broken windows of the west entrance. Deputy Smoker fired three times as well and Harris retreated back inside the building where the deputy could hear more gunfire. The deputies could hear more gunfire inside the school and saw several more students flee the building. Many students who weren't at lunch were still in classrooms and had no idea what was happening. Whoa, so people still didn't know what was going on after so many shots and explosions? That's really hard to believe. A student in the gym hallway saw Dylan and Eric walking east down the north hallway, firing weapons and laughing. Dylan fired a semi-automatic down the east hall. Bullets ricocheted off lockers and lodged them in walls as students fled the attack. Students Stephanie Munson and Melissa Walker stepped out of a tech lab classroom into the north hallway in time to see a teacher and several other students running toward the school main entrance to the east. The teacher hollered for them to run, get out of the building. Dylan fired his tech nine at them and they ran for the east entrance as well. As they made it to the next exit, Stephanie was shot in the ankle, but both girls were able to escape the building and to make it to safety in Leewood Park across the street. A student in the counseling hall saw Dylan chase a group of students east down the north hallway toward the main lobby. Eric wasn't far behind. Another student who was one of the phones at a bank inside the lobby glanced up in time to see them coming. She saw the sleeve of Klebold's black coat and his tech DC-9 firing toward the main entrance of the school. She had been talking to her mother, but when she saw the gunman, she dropped the phone and hid in the nearby restroom. Dylan stopped near that bank of phones and ran back to the way he came. West along the north hallway toward the library, the frightened student crept out of the restroom and back to the phone where she whispered to her mother to come pick her up. The girl then escaped through the east side of the school. Her mother's cell phone bill show, showed this call to have been from made from 11.23 to 11.26 a.m. The student estimated she'd been talking to her mother for about two minutes before she saw the shooter.
After evacuating the cafeteria, Coach Sanders headed up the stairs where he passed the library, motioning to Peggy that she and the others should stay put. Seeing Eric and Dylan ahead in the hall, Coach Dave Sanders turned and went back the way he'd come, but he was shot in the neck by Eric Harris just before making it around the corner. Varsity basketball player Greg Barnes, a junior, was in nearby science room, looking out the window when he saw Sanders go down. I saw Coach Sanders turn around, take two shots right in front of me. Blood went flying off him and he fell. He told reporters later, sadly, Greg committed suicide May 4, 2000. Eric paused to search his duffel bag, paused to search his duffel bag for something, possibly ammunition for a reload. Dylan fired down the north hallway again, then ran to the top of the cafeteria stairs right past where Coach Sanders lay bleeding. After a moment, Dylan doubled back the library hallway and rejoined Eric. After Dylan was up the hall, Coach Sanders was able to crawl to the corner of the science hallway where teacher Richard Long helped them into a classroom, Psy 3. A group of students, including Eagle Scouts Aaron Hainsey and Kevin Starkey, attended to his injuries and administered first aid while others called 911. They were told by emergency dispatch that help was on the way. At 11.27 a.m., Deputy Neil Gardner radioed in at Code 33. He also requested medical assistance to the west side of the school. On Pierce Street, Deputy Major set up a roadblock where he was immediately approached by a teacher and several students who wanted to report a person at the school with a gun. Inside the school, Harris and Klebold paced the library hallway for nearly three minutes, firing their weapons and throwing pipe bombs. They threw two pipe bombs over the stairway rail into the cafeteria, the explosions of which can be seen on the cafeteria surveillance camera. They threw two more in the library hall, damaging some lockers. They did lots of damage to the school, but they didn't injure anyone during this time. Though they looked in several of the science rooms where students were hiding, smoke from the pipe bombs poured into the library from the hall and the cafeteria downstairs as well. In the library, Patty Nielsen continued her 911 call from under the checkout desk, reporting what she could see and hear. Another teacher was on the phone with 911 at the other end of the hall at the time as well, reporting everything she heard. Patty split her attention between trying to talk to the 911 operator and ordering the kids in the room with her to stay down on the floor as she was afraid the shooters would enter the library where she, three staff members, and 55 students were hiding. Student Aaron. Student Aaron Hansey hit with the injured Coach Sanders and a handful of other frightened students who were trying to help the injured man. When pipe, they heard bombs go off near the door to the classroom. The students grew scared that the window in the door would allow the shooters to see them. Not wanting to be being shot as well, the kids hid, hid when the gunman walked by, leaving Sanders laying on the floor where he could be seen in the hope that Klebold and Harris would think he was already dead and not bother with the room. Once the gunman had passed, the students moved back to the critically injured man's side to keep him company and show him pictures of his family to keep him talking. Downstairs, Nick Foss, Tim Castle, and some other students tried to climb to freedom from the bathroom through the heating duct in the ceiling, but the duct broke. Nick fell 18 feet to a table below in the teacher's lounge where he got up and ran, ran out of the school to look for help. He didn't know his twin brother Adam Foss was still trapped in school where he barricaded himself in a narrow closet near the choir room room along, several, along with several other students.
Several students were able to escape from the high school, took cover behind Deputy Scott Taborski's car, and told him that two gunmen wearing black trench coats were in the school, armed with Uzis and hand grenades. Deputy Smoker radioed in at 11.20 a.m., and the shooter was wearing a black trench coat, going off statements from students who'd made it out of the school. Eric threw a pipe bomb right outside the library where Patty Nielsen was still on the phone with 911. She told the operator that the shooter was right outside the door. She lowered her voice to a whisper and spoke very very little after that, but the operator stayed on the line, recording what the phone could pick up. Student Evan Todd, in response to Patty's order to hide, had hidden himself behind a supporter pillar near the copy counter just before the explosion in the hallway. He looked around the pillar to see what was going on and saw Eric Harris out in the hall, carrying a sawed-off shotgun in one hand and a lit pipe bomb in the other. Eric threw it, threw it and soon after Evan heard another explosion. When Evan peeked around the pillar a second time, he saw Eric standing directly in front of the library doors. Eric saw Evan as well and fired around into the library, aimed at him. Evan ducked low behind the nearby copy counter to the north of the circulation desk. Eric fired another round, splintering the wood of the counter and injuring Evan with flying debris. At 11.29 a.m., Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold entered the library, hollering for everyone in the large room to get up loud enough that they could be heard over the phone Patty was holding. Witnesses hiding in the library subroom said they heard the gunmen say things such as, everyone with a white cap or baseball cap, stand up. And all jocks, stand up. We'll get the guys in white hats. Wearing a white hat at a Columbine was a sign of being a jock, of which there were several hiding in the library at that time. When no one stood up, One of the shooters were heard to say, fine, I'll start shooting. Dylan and Eric proceeded through the library toward the west windows on the opposite side of the room, past two rows of computers to their north. Klebold shot at the computer lab, while Evan Evan Todd quickly moved to a new hiding place behind the administrator's desk. 16-year-old Kyle Velasquez, who had suffered a stroke, as an infant and was mentally retarded, was sitting at the computer table in the north row when Dylan Klebold shot him. Kyle took a shotgun blast in the back of the head and died immediately. At 11.30 a.m., dispatch reported possible shots in the Columbine High School Library. Jefferson County Patrol Deputy Rick Searle had his hands full, evacuating fleeing students outside who had taken cover behind Deputy Tarbury's car. In three trips, he took the young refugees, including some who were injured, south to a safe place at Yukon Street and Cayley Avenue that would quickly become a triage area for the injured. More students were hiding behind Taborski's car by the time he returned. Meanwhile, Deputy Kevin Walker provided cover for the students fleeing Columbine's lower level. By that point, county dispatch was swamped with 9-11 calls and had to go into an emergency command system to deal with the volume of reports, bringing in additional dispatchers to deal with the overload. The shooters set their backpacks filled with ammunition and Molotov cocktails down on the southern computer table. After reloading their weapons, the gunmen moved between the north and south computer tables toward the western windows, 
where Eric got down on one knee and began shooting out the West Library window at law enforcement officers who were evacuating students, shattering the glass between them. Klebel knelt down to the east of Harris and fired out the broken west window as well. Dylan stopped to take off his coat, dropping it near a table before firing a shotgun at a nearby table, injuring Patrick Ireland, Daniel Steepleton, and Mackay Hall. And with this, we will end it. We will close with another ad break. Are you tired of getting your hair messed up at your local barbershop? Do you live in the Orange County area? Visit the barbers at Faded Barbershop, where their experienced barbers will take care of you and have you looking fresh in no time. Have a wedding you have to attend to this weekend and need a fresh cut? Book your appointment at Faded Barbershop. Have an interview you're looking to smash? Book your appointment at Faded Barbershop. In the heart of Santa Ana at 2222 South Bristol Street. Give them a call or visit their Instagram page, at Faded Barbershop, and you won't be disappointed. Outside the school, police returned fire, but could not get a clear shot at either gunman. Fortunately for their intended targets, the gunmen were having no better success at hitting people outside. Eric Harris turned away from the windows and opened fire on the nearest table to the north. His first shot killed Steve Curnow, who was hiding under the last desk as his second shot injured Casey Ruxsegger. Outside, deputies helped get escaping students and a faculty to safety. At 11.31 a.m., Deputy Cyril reported seeing smoke coming from the school. The fire alarms went off, blaring so loud some people on the phone with 911 couldn't be heard. On the 911 call from the library, one of the gunmen can be heard yelling, Yahoo! and several shots are recorded. Matthew Depew, son of one of the officers, later on the scene made a 911 call from the night from the kitchen looking for his dad. At 11.32 a.m., the sheriff's office fielded the first media call from reporters seeking information. Media crews in the area who were hoping for some more news on the John Bennett Ramsey case flocked to the scene in droves, totaling close to 400 before it was all over. In their desire to get as close to the scene as possible, some news vans even jumped curbs and parked in the grass. Several Denver police officers arrived on scene as well, responding to the incoming request for more emergency backup. Inside the library, Eric moved south and seeing two girls hiding under the table there, he slapped the table twice. He then bent down and said, peekaboo, before he shot and killed Cassie Bernal. The recoil from the shotgun caught him in the face, breaking his nose and making it bleed. The sight of the blood on his face disturbed several students who told reporters afterward that he looked as though he had been drinking blood. Despite the anger still present, despite the danger still present, Pat Ireland moved out of his hiding place to administer first aid to Mackay Hall. Seeing him, Dylan shot him twice in the head and once more in the foot when Pat tried to crawl back down undercover. The blast knocked one of his shoes off and he fell to the floor unconscious. Mackay and Dan Steepleton played dead to avoid being shot again as well. Bree Pasquale was crouched down out in the open just south of the table under which Cassie had been hiding. There was no other place for her to hide and when Eric turned her way, she was completely defendless. Gun aimed at her, Harris asked Bree, do you want to die? 
Bree answered, No, please, don't shoot me. I have a family and a fiancé. He laughed at her, and then finally seemed to notice his nose was still bleeding. Dylan, it hit my nose, he said, and according to Bree Pasquale, he started laughing again. Everyone's gonna die, he said. Then added, we're gonna blow up the school anyway. Dylan then called his attention to two boys hiding under, under another table, and Eric, distracted, forgot about Bree and moved to join his fellow gunmen. It would be four days before she'd be able to sleep again. She was so traumatized by her encounter with Eric Harris. Dylan was at another set of tables east of Harris, where three friends were hiding. Matthew, Isaiah, and Craig Scott. The shooters flanked the table on the east and west sides. Isaiah was heard by witnesses to have told the shooters that he was scared and wanted to go home and see his mom. Dylan made a racial comment towards Isaiah and tried to pull him under pull him out from under the table. When that didn't work, Eric fired under the side of the table, killing Isaiah. Dylan followed his lead and shot under his side of the table as well, killing Matt Kector. Craig Scott was miraculously uninjured, left to lay in his friend spilling blood, pretending to be dead. Eric then threw a CO2 cartridge under the table where Mackay, Daniel, and Pat were. It landed on Dan's thigh, but he was too afraid of being shot to move. Even though he could see it was lit, Mackay Hall grabbed the bomb, threw it back out further south away from the gunman and the table. It exploded mid-air without hurting anyone. Harrison headed over to someone, some bookcases between the center and west sections of the library, where he jumped on the shelves, shaking them and swearing. Witnesses say he fired a shot somewhere behind the bookcases, but no one could see him then. Meanwhile, Dylan crossed the room to the east side of the library, where he shot out the trophy case near the door. Moving around the broken display, he shot underneath the nearest library table to the south, leaving Mark Kington with bullets in his head and shoulder. Clevel then turned and shot at the students, hiding under the table to his left, injuring both Lisa Krauts and Valeen Schnoor with the same bullet. He then fired eight times in rapid succession, following by a ninth shot, killing Lauren Townsend, who had been beside Val Schnur. Dylan then moved to join Eric, who went over to another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down so he could look at them, then dismissed them as pathetic. Valine, who had been forced out of her hiding place by the shot she'd taken, cried out in panic, Oh my god, help me, several times. One of the shooters who was reloading his weapon at the time asked her if she believed in God. She floundered in her answer, saying no at first, and then yes, trying to get the answer right. He asked her why, and she said it was because it was what her family believed. She crawled back under the table, and then she pretended to die. Popular belief has it that Cassie was the individual who was asked, do you believe in God? But the above recount is what the witnesses in the library reported, and what was entered into, into the Columbine report. Eric Harris moved to another table, where he was shot and injured Nicole, where he shot and injured Nicole Nellen and John Tomlin. John tried to crawl out from under the table. At that point, Dylan shot and killed him. Eric then went around the table, back to the table where Lauren had been killed. Kelly Fleming was hiding behind it, as was the case with Brie Pasquale. There wasn't room under a table for Kelly. Eric shot her in the back. She died instantly. He shot her under the table once more, hitting Lauren, who was already dead, and Lisa again. He also wounded Gina Park, who was hiding under the table as well. At 11.34 a.m., the shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at a table midway across the room. 
Eric then caught sight of a student hiding under a nearby table and recognizing him told him to identify himself. While Dylan, with Dylan aiming a gun at his head, John Savage identified himself. He was an acquaintance of Dylan. He asked Dylan what he was doing, to which Dylan replied casually, oh, just killing off people. John asked if they were going to kill him too, and Dylan told him to get out of the library. John left immediately, escaping through the library's main entrance. Damn, so it seems like uh, some of the acquaintances of Dylan and Eric actually had a chance to escape. Who knows? Maybe Eric and Dylan liked these guys, or maybe didn't have any issues with these guys. That's why they were actually able to escape. At 11.35 a.m., Eric turned and fired on the table directly north of where they'd been, shooting Daniel Masur in the face at close range, killing him. Both Dylan and Eric then moved south to another table where Jennifer Doyle, Stephen Eubanks, and Corey DePooter were hiding. Both gunmen opened fire on the kids hiding there. Jennifer and Austin were injured. Corey was killed. The gunmen then headed toward the administration desk. Eric threw a Molotov cocktail toward the southwestern end of the library as he went, but it didn't explode. Eric came around the east side of the counter and Dylan joined him from the west. They both converged near where Evan Todd had moved to, and after being injured, Dylan made fun of him and discussed killing him but didn't see Evan's story. Eric then suggested they go down to the school's common area. Before leaving, Dylan fired a sh- Before leaving, Dylan fired a shot into the library staff break room, hitting a television. He then slammed a chair down on top of the computer terminal that was on the library counter, beneath which Patty Nelson was hiding. The gunman left the library at 11.36 a.m. Patty Nelson, still on the phone with 9-11, whispered to the operator that she had to go and then took opportunity to duck into the library's break room to hide in a cupboard. Library technician Carol Webb and assistant Lois Keene hid in the television studio while teacher Peggy Dodd hid in the periodical rooms where all four remained hidden until the Denver SWAT team came to evacuate them at 3.30 p.m. So the SWAT team came to evacuate them at 3.30 p.m. Hmm... That seems a little late, but let's continue. At the same time the shooters were leaving the library, Deputy Cyril reported a man on the roof wearing a red, white, and blue striped shirt. The man was thought to be a possible third shooter at the time, but he was later identified as an air conditioning repairman out on a service call to fix a leak above the girls' locker room. The repairman was on the roof when the first shots were fired. He used a pair of vice grips to clamp shut down the roof's access hatch so no one would come up onto the roof. He then tried to hide himself so he, would be, he wouldn't be shot. At the same time, Jeffco, SWAT team commander Man Waring arrived at, a Pierce, at Pierce and Leah Wood and declared that the SWAT to be the SWAT staging area. The Littleton Fire Department was positioned at Pierce and Weaver Streets. Silence fell over the library for those left in it. Though the injured were moaning and everyone's ears were ringing from the explosions and the fire alarms were blaring, the survivors later described the room as eerily quiet. The gunfire had stopped. For the longest time, no one moved. No one looked at each other. No one spoke. Slowly, those left alive crept out of the library through the northern emergency exit that led out to the sidewalk where the massacre began. Individually and in groups of two and three, they escaped, fearful that the shooters would come back and finish what they started. Gina Parks and Casey Rugzegger made it to safety behind the shelter of Deputy Tarborski patrol car where they hid till help could come for them. Val Snor and others fled for the safety of the patrol cars as well, telling officers that the shooters have left the library. 
Patrick Ireland unconscious and Lisa Croats most paralyzed were left behind. In just over seven minutes, 10 people were killed and 12 more wounded. There were a total of 56 people in the library. 34 escaped injury. The shooters had more than enough ammo to kill everyone, but for whatever reason, they hadn't. From the library, Dylan and Eric made their way back to the, down the hall to the science area. They looked in through the door windows of some of the law classrooms and even made eye contact with several students, but they didn't actually try to break into the rooms. Witnesses said that Eric and Dylan didn't appear to be overly intent on gaining access to any of the rooms. They easily could have shot the locks on the doors or through the windows into the classrooms, but they didn't. Their behavior was rather directionless at this point. At 11.38 a.m., they threw several more pipe guns down the cafeteria below. They threw an explosive into a storage room in passing, but no one was in it. A teacher saw the gunman at approximately 11.40 a.m. in the science hallway in front of the chemical storage room just east of science room 3, where she was hiding. Several students saw Dylan and Eric shoot into empty rooms and after they taped the Molotov cocktail to the storage room door next to the area where Coach Sanders and several students were hiding. The explosive caused a small fire in the storage room when it went off. A teacher put out a fire a short while later, once the gunmen had left the area. Dylan and Eric headed down to the cafeteria at 11.44 a.m. Eric stopped on the stairs and knelt down to the fire to fire several shots with this carbine at a duffel bag containing one of the 20-pound propane bombs they had left earlier. Despite the room being littered with hundreds of backpacks and bags, he knew exactly which one to shoot at. It didn't work. Dylan walked over to the same bomb after Eric's failed attempts to detonate it and tampered with something on the floor, but again, nothing happened. A witness hiding in the cafeteria heard one of the gunmen say, Today the world's going to come to an end. Today is the day that we die. The boys drank some of the water bottles the other students left behind. The cafeteria surveillance tape showed Klebold light, some, light something, possibly a CO2 cartridge or a pipe bomb, and throw it at the bomb. Smaller containers of flammable liquids were attached to the bomb, and these were ignited by whatever it was Dylan, that, whatever it was Dylan threw, causing a fire as the shooters went back upstairs at 11.46 a.m. If you watch uh, surveillance tape that's out, you can see it go about halfway through. The explosion is in the upper right-hand corner. It's hard to miss being about four tables across in the blast radius. The explosion blew out the windows of the cafeteria and the fire activated five sprinklers in the area. The actual 20-pound propane bomb and the second complete bomb duffel bag beside a nearby table didn't explode. If they had, the investigators believe it would have been enough to bring the whole library down on the cafeteria. So it seems like these propane bombs that uh, they left in duffel bags never really exploded. Um, it could have been maybe a, a malfunction, a malwire, uh, so they never really exploded. And I feel like that was what they wanted to do, right? Um, they wanted to basically cause an explosion and then just have everybody run out and then just shoot them away. This is some pretty crazy stuff, guys. At 11.49 a.m., the shooters headed to the main office area where unarmed security guard and a secretary were hiding on lengthy calls to 911. Outside, the Denver SWAT team arrived on the east side of Columbine. Three minutes later, Jefferson County Undersheriff John Dunaway arrived at the command post that the police had set up and authorized the SWAT team to enter the school. At 11.53 a.m., Eric and Dylan moved from the offices to the art hall, firing their weapons into the ceiling as they went. 
They went back down to the cafeteria again at 11.56 a.m., looking defeated and posture on the security tapes. The bombs hadn't exploded and the sprinkler team had put out the fire they'd managed to start. At that time, the first reporters of two gunmen at Columbine High School were beginning to air on television. The shooters went into the kitchen very briefly, then headed back upstairs once more. At 12 p.m. precisely, outside, an unarmored vehicle arrived because the area was deemed unsafe for medical. Uninterrupted broadcasts on television were now airing on television stations nationwide, stunning the people of the United States. From 12.02 to 12.05, the gunmen were back in the library, firing out the broken west windows at emergency workers and law enforcement who were trying to get people to safety and assist the wounded who were able to get out of the school. The Denver SWAT team finally started an approach to the school under the cover of a, command, of a commandeered fire truck. At 12.04, paramedics were able to rescue Sean Graves and Anne-Marie Hochhalter from where they lay on the ground outside the school near the cafeteria. Both would later need wheelchairs. Lance Kirkland was rescued as well and transported to makeshift triage area a few blocks away. Dan Rorborough was deemed dead and left people be- and left behind. Police had to provide cover for paramedics when they're shot at from the broken windows of the second floor library above the cafeteria. Officers returned fire to provide care for the folks executing rescue maneuvers while SWAT members watched the scene unfold from nearby roofs of houses. Once the ambulances left with the three injured students, the gunfire from the library ceased. At that point, the only people left alive in the library were Patrick Ireland, Lisa Krauts, and the four faculty hiding in the break room and video rooms, including Patty Nielsen. Because of the noise of cover fire from law enforcement outside, None of them were able to say later when exactly Eric Harris and Dylan Klebel shot themselves, but after 12.05, no shots attri- attributed to the killers were fired. Investigators believe they committed suicide shortly after opening fire on the rescue workers below. Escaping students were leapfrogged down a line of police cars positioned to provide cover for them outside the school. A news helicopter began circling the school at a time, providing aerial coverage of the event. At 12.06, the first SWAT team arrived at the school's east entrance. Jefferson County SWAT Deputy Alan Simmons' team of five men entered the building through the southeast entrance. A smoke alarm on the ceiling went off in the library at 12.08 p.m. Above where the shooters' bodies were later, above where the shooters' bodies were later found, a small Molotov cocktail had been placed on a nearby table by one of the gunmen. The lit fuse of the thing was hot enough to break the glass of the bottle, allowing the flammable liquid inside to spill out and make small fire that set off the alarm, but it didn't cause an explosion. Arson investigators determined the small fire occurred after the shooters killed themselves. The heating and air conditioning repairman was removed from the roof of Columbine at 12.11pm. At 12.21pm, Lance Kirkland was taken from the official triage area southwest of the school at the south entrance to Clement Park and transported to Denver Health Medical. At 12.25pm, paramedics rescued Mark Taylor from where he lay bleeding nearby. Deputy Cyril and other officials made it to the injured students, hiding behind Deputy Tversky's vehicle, and got them transported to medical facilities at around 12.27pm. At about 12.30, Jefferson County SWAT Team Commander Lieutenant Terry reached the west side back entrance, believing the situation to be one of hostage negotiation. They sent in a team of five people through the upper level who stopped at the closed doors in the halls that separated them from the science room, fire room, and library, where the majority of the students are hiding wounded or dead. 
About 20 students were freed. Val Stoner was taken from trash to the hospital at 12.31 p.m. At 12.35, two members of the Denver SWAT team, Captain Dimana and Lieutenant Pat Feldman, rescued Richard Costello from the grassy knoll, laying in front of the bumper of the fire truck they were using for cover. Wine Warring's team in the next tried to, next to try to rescue Rachel Scott. The SWAT team brought her back to the fire truck where they realized she was dead. They put her down on the ground beside the fire truck and went back for Dan Warborough. On reaching him, they found he was he too was dead and left him there. When he was told the other victims were dead, Deputy Scott Taborski put Richard Costaldo in his patrol car and rushed him to triage. A half hour later, Richard was one was on his way to the Swedish Medical Center. Lieutenant Manwaring's team noticed an undetonated explosive in front of the west doors where they had rescued Richard from. Because of it, Manwaring decided to try to use a fire truck to ram the doors which would provide the team entry into Columbine. His plan was short-lived. Due to the recent wet weather, the ground was very soft and the fire truck got stuck in the mud. At 12.50 p.m., Sergeant Barry Williams, commander of the Jefferson County SWAT team, command commanded a front-end loader from a nearby construction site and used it as a shield to move into position close to the east side of the school. At 1.09 p.m., he, his team smashed the window and entered the teacher's lounge. They secured the smell lounge and looked into the cafeteria, which was destroyed and soaked in three to four inch deep water from the sprinkler system, which was still spraying the bomb blasted room. Melted chairs, dangling ceiling tiles, exposed wire, and abandoned backpacks everywhere. Part of Sergeant Williams' team was left at the cafeteria entrance to secure it and cover those who delved into the war zone. The SWAT who went into found students hiding in kitchen storage rooms, terrified and up to their ankles in water. The SWAT team's black uniform and weapons made the traumatized survivors slow to respond. Many saw the black uniforms the team were wearing and feared they were the shooters. 20 to 30 students were evacuated from the kitchen and storage rooms. They even found two males shivering and, ha and half frozen in the freezer area. Most of the, the evacuees were sent out of the school through the staff lounge window the SWAT had used to enter the building. This site is what many many who saw Columbine on the news remember seeing first. Kids being let out of the broken window with their hands atop their heads like they were being taken prisoner. The SWAT thought the shooters might try to escape by changing their clothes and bending in with other students. So they checked everyone who left the building for weapons as well as injuries. By 1.30 p.m., more students were freed from the downstairs areas where the shooters hadn't been. The SWAT kept getting conflicting reports about where the gunmen were, so they checked places like the auditorium, where they forced open locked storage room doors and choir row closets. They found about 60 students hiding in the closet of the music room. The kids were so frightened that they refused to respond to the SWAT when called to initially and wouldn't leave the closet. Many had been had seen the black combat fatigues and boots the shooters wore, which were similar to what the SWAT team was wearing. Confused and scared, they thought the SWAT were the people who had been shooting up the school. Once the officers were able to get the terrified survivors out, they were all searched and then evacuated in groups of 10. Despite having, despite having been searched and cleared, the victims were told to keep their hands on their heads and they were hustled out of the damaged school. The news footage of the sight of kids being herded like prisoners out of a broken window and past the bodies of Rachel and Danny were the first scene many would see of the shootings at Columbine High as news crews were live and rolling by that time. By that time, the other team had cleared the southeast section of Columbine. Williams' group moved from the cafeteria to the second level of the school. Not far from they were from where they were, students Daedra Kusera posted a sign in the window. 
I'm bleeding to death in an attempt to get some kind of help to coach Sanders. The SWAT team was told that the sign in the room that they needed to go would have a bloody rag tied to the handle. But seeing pipe bomb fragments, the SWAT team decided to proceed with caution. It took them about until 2.32 p.m. to reach the the room. Despite the combined efforts of the students to save him, Dave Sanders died on the floor from blood loss nearly three hours after he was shot. The student who was with him when he died said Coach Sanders' last words were, Tell my family I love him. At 2.30, two SWAT teams entered the teacher's lounge next to the kitchen and began securing lower, securing the lower level and tried freeing people from hiding in the kitchen and the bathrooms. Casualties became arriving at two local hospitals. Five people began suffering from serious gunshot wounds were taken to the Swedish Medical Center in Denver. At 2.38 p.m., the SWAT moved to, in to rescue Patrick Ireland, who had regained consciousness and had, in a desperate attempt to stay alive, hauled himself to the second floor window of the library. Slipping in and out of the consciousness, he pushed himself up using his good leg and rolled himself out of the lo- out onto the ledge where he dangled with nothing to land on below but concrete. With news cameras capturing everything, the SWAT had to move in under the cover of an armored unit to rescue him before he fell. Around that time, the students with Coach Sanders had given up waiting and snapped the legs off the table to make a gurney for him. At 2.42 p.m., Williams' SWAT team finally made it to where Dave Sanders lay bleeding on the floor of the science lab. They radioed in for medical assistance to be sent in for for a teacher with multiple gunshot wounds. They wouldn't let the students use their gurney to move Sanders in. They said they wanted to get the healthy people out first and they would move them out. At 2.47 p.m., that team moved out roughly 60 students from the science area, freeing them from the building while two team members remained with the still-living Sanders. It wasn't until 3.25 p.m. that the SWAT team finally made it into the library. The four officials who entered had to step over numerous bombs trying to get to each of the victims. They found Lisa Krauts badly injured but still alive and seeing her wounds called for paramedics. Lisa was placed on a backboard and transported to the hospital at 3.37 p.m., the last surviving victim to be removed from school. At 4.38 p.m., Dr. Christopher Caldwell was called from Denver Health Medical Center to search for the signs of life among those left at the scene. Outside, he pronounced Rachel Scott and Dan Rorbo dead. At 4.45 p.m., he was taken to the library where he pronounced 10 more students dead. He was then escorted to the science area where he found and pronounced Dave Sanders dead. He bled to death while waiting for medical assistance to arrive. Around 4 p.m., the sheriff made an initial estimate of 25 dead students and teachers. 10 over the actual count. Littleton police entered the library where they found Eric and Dylan dead from self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head. The shooters lay close together in bloody heaps. Dylan was found laying on the floor with a Tech DC-9 and Eric had his sawed-off shotgun between his legs, slumped against a shelf of books. Both boys were still armed with several unused weapons. Investigation later confirmed the boys were both dead by 12.30 p.m., three hours before their bodies were found. Even though the officials knew for hours the shooters had been in the library, thanks to the 911 call Patty Nielsen made. Officials searched Dylan and Eric's body at the time to be sure there were no booby traps. Around 3.30 p.m., the bomb squad had also been called in to go over the area. These events took place before any forensic teams were allowed to get in to take pictures, so the bodies were not in the original positions where the infamous photos were taken of the gunmen dead in the library. And you guys can see these pictures online. They're pretty crazy. 
At 4.30 p.m., Columbine was officially declared safe, but more officers were called in at 5.30 p.m. when explosives were found in the parking lots. At 6.15 p.m., the bomb squad found a live bomb in Dylan's car, so the sheriff declared the whole school a crime scene. Cordoning it off with police tape with all dead bodies still inside, the dead couldn't be moved till a full investigation was done. At 10.45 p.m., the car bomb went off when an official tried to defuse it, damaging the BMW without injuring anyone. The day after the shootings, thousands of people came and went, leaving flowers and other memorials. For those who died, it was sunny that afternoon, but as soon as the bodies of the shooters were removed from the school, an unseasonal blizzard began. And we will take our last ad break. So there you have it, you guys. What do you guys think of what happened uh, back in uh, April 20th, 1999? Like I remember when I was uh, when I was younger, I don't think I remember ever seeing that on the news. But as I grew up. You know I, I heard about this so altogether there was 15 deaths it was uh, 12 students one um, one teacher and uh, the two murderers Eric and Dylan so a total of 15 deaths uh, in this time in, in 1999 that was actually the the highest um, you know the highest number of deaths um, in a situation like this um, you know, nothing like this had ever happened in the past. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really uh, mind-blowing, you know, everything that happened. Some people say that these uh, Eric and Dylan, you know, they were part of a, uh, of a Nazi, of a Nazi cult, you know. Um, they felt like they were above everybody and, uh, you know, uh, that's why they decided to do this. There's a lot of theories where they say, hey... Um, this happened because they were bullied in school. Um, but, you know, who knows? We never really know. We're never really going to find out what happened. Um, because they they committed suicide, right? They they took that, uh, that knowledge to their deaths. Um, later on, they did, the police did find tapes um, in, in the basement, I believe, of Eric. Um, where they recorded themselves, you know, with guns, with trench coats. Um, also, they were underage, so they weren't able to per- legally purchase guns. So after the massacre, they actually uh, arrested a couple of people that uh, Eric and uh, and Dylan contacted in order to get those guns for them. But um, yeah, some pretty heavy stuff, guys. Um, it makes you think about, you know, about us, about whenever we went to school, you know, luckily none of us ever lived through something like that, but it's, it's crazy how you can go to school thinking, you are you know, you're going to learn, you're, you're, you're expecting to come home to your family and then something like this happening. I definitely know that in a situation like this, you know, it's, and a lot of, a lot of us would might think, Hey, you know what? If something like this happens, I would probably, uh, you know, hide, you know, real good or maybe, you know, take off. But, you know, we never know what can happen in a situation like this, you know, especially with uh, with the shock of something like that happening. You know, most of the time, you know, 
it, it, it keeps us from, you know, taking action. Um, so this episode is dedicated to all those people that died. Um, you know, this is not glorifying what Eric and Dylan did by any means. This is more of a, of a dedication to the people that died, to the people that lost their families, uh, to the people that lost an older brother, an older sister, a younger brother, a younger sister, uh, to the parents that lost their kids, because it's uh, some pretty heavy stuff, guys. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I know it was, it was, you know, not the usual, not the paranormal stuff, but this is something that's, uh, you know, going to go down in history um, as one of the, you know, biggest, uh, biggest massacres in the United States. Um, but yeah, thank you very, thank you very much, guys, for taking the time to listen to me. Um, and, you know, you guys can always reach out to me, um, you know, notify me if you guys want me to talk about a certain subject, um, anything you guys want me to talk about, um, I'll definitely comply. Uh, and I appreciate the support. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I might have a, a guest next week um, and we can go back to uh, to paranormal and then we might jump to a conspiracy story. So thank you very much and you guys have a good night.